Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm here again with Dr. Jenna Sheftel, and we are continuing what we talked about last time related to COVID. So in our last episode, we primarily covered uncertainty. And today we're just going to talk kind of freely with one another about what we're seeing in our clinical practice, both to offer tips for those that are suffering from some of the things that we're talking about and um, to give other people who aren't um, suffering from the same things some context about what their friends and family might be experiencing. Um, So Jenna, thank you so much for being here again this week. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. So we are seeing four different topics that we want to talk about today. So we're seeing um, depression, social anxiety, contamination, OCD, and agoraphobia. And so these are um, conditions that Jenna and I both treat regularly in our practice. And we just have some specific concerns about how social distancing and self-isolation may be impacting these different conditions. And so we want to just share our thoughts about what we're seeing and um, what you might do in response. Um, Jenna, do you want to add anything at this point? No, that's perfect. Those are the four that we're really seeing a, a spike in and can be a little complicated at this time. Yeah. Okay. So let's just jump into um, talking about depression. And so what I'm seeing in particular, and Jen, I would love to hear what you're seeing, is that those that have already experienced a depressive episode can be really cued by what's happening now. So often when you have a depressive episode, it's difficult to get out of bed. You spend a lot of time in your bedroom. You're likely to be withdrawn or isolated from other people. You may eat more or less, you're likely to exercise less, you're likely to be sleeping more, watching a lot of TV, and so in general kind of bored in addition to being fatigued, feeling guilt, worthlessness, hopelessness, and helplessness. And so whether someone has gotten completely out of their depressive episode or still has some of the thinking and behaviors that occurs when they're depressed, this kind of forced social distancing and self-isolation can basically feel like the exact same thing. And using skills, behavioral activation, and diffusion from thoughts and feelings in a time like this when there isn't actually a lot of other options just can be really challenging. So I have some thoughts about it, but Jenna, do you have immediate thoughts about it? So it sounds like you're saying that for people who've already gone through this, it's possible that they're at risk for triggering another episode of depression, specifically because they're set and setting, they're, they're, um, is going to be feel so similar to the last time that they were there. Is that 
Yes, exactly. And so we want to comment on here is just because you feel the same doesn't mean that depression is any more true. And whatever skills you've used to get out of it in the, the last time are still relevant now. You just might have to be a little bit more creative. So behavioral activation, which is the one of the main techniques we use to treat depression, is basically doing the opposite of what you feel. So you feel like isolating and you connect with others anyway. You feel like sleeping more and you get out of your bed, take a shower and move your body in some capacity. Would you add anything more about how you understand what behavioral activation is? Just that it can start very small. So when people are depressed, they're saying, yeah, of course I should get out of bed, but that's really hard. So with some people, when things are severe, you can start really small, like brushing your teeth, flossing one tooth. I think I have started that small before. And so we work with people to make sure that they're setting goals and behavioral activation goals that are really where they're at and just building on that slowly. Okay. Yes, that's great. And so all of that applies when you're self-isolating. So if it's hard, if it's hard to take a shower, brushing your teeth, great. Giving yourself credit for brushing your teeth too. When everything is hard, anything you do is a challenge and a victory. And it's really brave to be a person that's living with mental illness. So anything you do takes courage. Anything you do is as challenging as it feels. One thing that gets in the way, both with anxiety, OCD, and depression, is that whatever the next step is might feel too small for people mm -hmm. to give themselves the credit they deserve for that next step. Do you want to say more about that? No, I agree. But yeah. it's very important because wherever you're at is, if it's hard, it's a big step. Even if it in your normal life would feel small. Yes, I totally agree. And so that's if you're already in a depressive episode. If you weren't in a, in a depressive episode and now you're feeling those feelings come on and some of the behaviors come on, so it's harder to take a shower and get out of your pajamas. You're thinking, oh, it doesn't matter whether or not I get out of my pajamas because nobody's going to see me today. We just would strongly encourage that you keep the structure that you had when you left. So try to sleep at the same time, try to get up at the same time, eat and shower at the same time. If you typically exercise in most locations, you're, it's still okay to go outside as far as I know. Is that true from your perspective, Jenna? I think in yeah. some places it's changing, but it depends where you are. But in some places like near me, we can still go out in the forest preserve and take a walk. But I think downtown Chicago, the parks are closed. So it really depends where you are. Yeah, I totally agree. But another thing that's coming to mind for me is there's so many fitness apps right. that are now either live classes or things that you can follow along. So if you're in a location where you can't leave, even doing like a single stretch or the first step might be just downloading an app that might be helpful for movement and all of those, again, big steps, give yourself credit for that and just try to do the smallest next step every day. We could say. And I've heard that a lot of them are actually free now, like the Nike app, uh, maybe the Adidas app. They're offering free membership for until they say, like with no specific end point, which is wonderful. That is wonderful. I've seen a lot of my patients be very creative. I've been very impressed. They've been making charts for themselves about daily charts of small things that they want to do every day so that they can check them off as they go through them um, as a 
preemptive measure to prevent themselves from getting into a slump or from having that moment of like, I don't know what to do. I might as well just turn on the TV. They can always look at their chart and say, well, what haven't I done today? Things like do 10 sit-ups, water the plants, call a friend. Like any kind of arts and crafts. Like any kind of creative activity, I think any type of cleaning activity, like going through clothing that you haven't worn in years, cabinets that are disorganized, all of those types of things that you might not do if you didn't have extended periods of time at home are all like productive uses of time that make you feel like less, really they encourage efficacy, which can be a a real challenge when you're feeling depressed. Sure has helped me feel better having gotten that clock clean and yeah, <laughs> things me, me too. Yes. Okay. So the other thing besides behaviors, when it comes to potentially falling into a depressive slump, the other thing is the feelings that come with it. And so whether you're biologically really sensitive to the feeling of uncertainty, as we talked about in last episode, that makes it just exhausting to feel so much uncertainty so frequently, and then that can be demoralizing and make you feel depressed, or there's changes in your actual life circumstances that are making you feel worthless or hopeless or helpless. All of those types of feelings can really contribute to fatigue that then contributes to the cascade of behaviors that can lead to depression. So we just want to comment on those feelings too. And also, actually, guilt can be a feeling that is really common in depression and excessive guilt and the kind of inflated responsibility that we'll talk about later that people feel about not getting other people sick can then also make you feel guilty, maybe worthless, maybe helpless, maybe hopeless, and then again, contribute to depression. Do you have thoughts about that, Jenna? No, I I appreciate how you're phrasing that. Yeah. And I think I haven't talked too much on the podcast about depression yet. The one thing that I want to say is I'm kind of second wave CBT about depression. I also appreciate third wave. So acceptance and commitment therapy and all the techniques that work to alleviate depression, including mindfulness and commitment to valued action. And at the same time, actually challenging thoughts that can contribute to efficacy, I think is relevant. So you don't just want to get distance from a thought that says, oh, there's nothing I can do to make my life circumstances better, but actually challenging it with like, what could I do to make my life circumstance better right now? And whether that's making a healthy meal or looking up a new job, all of those behaviors will actually give you the feeling of efficacy in the, in the presence of helplessness and hopelessness. And the hope is that your attitude is it's not so much about my outcome, it's more about my process. And as long as I'm taking helpful action, eventually something's going to change. And I think if you're, when you're approaching problems from this more like problem, positive problem orientation, you're just much less likely to fall into depression. So is this related to the research and theory that when you're in a depressive state, you're much more likely to be overwhelmed by overly negative thoughts and interpretations of your reality? Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. And that whereas in what we call third wave CBT, we would say, well, just let those thoughts be there and don't really interact with them. In second wave, you would say, let's look at those thoughts and see if they're actually if there's if they're 100% true or if there's some room to if we can kind of find a crack in that belief 
Yes, I love that. I think right now it's really hard when you try to challenge with like, is that really true? There actually is so much uncertainty that some of it, it's a lot of times some thoughts may actually seem like they're true or they could be true. Mm -hmm. What I would try to do with those thoughts would go with like, actually we don't, our hope lies in the fact that we don't know. Mm. So they could be true, but they might not be true. And there might be actions you could take right now that set yourself up to be better later on. A lot of the people I'm working with or some amount of the people that I'm working with are either already in college or grad school or are starting to use this time to study for something else that they Mm. either have always wanted to do or will set themselves up to have more career diversity. So that is an example of like, you don't, you don't exactly know that you're going to be prepared once all of this is over, but if you're feeling bored, maybe you're out of work or you think that you might be out of work or the work that you're doing, there's much less of it because of the circumstances. This could also be a time to get yourself greater training. Mm-hmm. And you had talked about earlier the, the feelings of hopelessness and helplessness that come along with depression. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking a lot about how retraining or focusing on something new or learning a new skill could help alleviate some of that, those feelings of hopelessness or helplessness. Yeah, I completely agree. Great. Okay. So I think that's about all the thoughts I have on depression. Do you have anything else you want to say about depression? Why don't we move into social anxiety? So are you up for kind of framing up social anxiety and how you typically treat it? Yeah, so social anxiety is a fear of judgment or embarrassment in socially in front of Sometimes it can be peers, sometimes it's strangers, sometimes it's family members, it can be anyone. And it's a difficulty tolerating the sensations that come along with embarrassment, the sense of it being embarrassed. What we usually do to treat that, like we do with any anxiety disorder, is we f- talk to the person about two things. One, what they're avoiding. So what kind of situations they're just flat out avoiding because they are scared of them or because they're worried they're going to make them uncomfortable. And the second is when they do force themselves to go into those sort of situations, what are the, what we call safety behaviors or things that they do in those situations to help them feel more comfortable, but in effect, avoid some of the feelings when they're in the situation. So things like not making eye contact, always staying with a safety person. So we we come up with a a list of the things that they're doing to avoid those feelings and situations. And then we help people confront them slowly, starting with things they think might be the least provoking of anxiety for them, and then working up what we call the hierarchy. Would you add anything to that, Maggie? No, I think that's a wonderful description. Can you say more about the some examples especially i have some examples at different parts in the hierarchy but do you want to start with you know the lowest like the first type of exposure you might do right so if someone is extremely anxious we might actually start with imagining being not actually exposing oneself to social situations but just imagining a social situation that goes well and we move from there all the way up to intentionally putting yourself in a social situation where you know you're going to embarrass yourself and learning to tolerate that sort of embarrassment. And of course, there's lots of steps in between. Walking down the street and smiling at strangers, walking down, just walking down the street sometimes alone, sometimes walking down the street 
with someone first. And what would you add, Maggie? Yeah, and I was just going to say, given that we're social creatures, there are some people that are able to completely avoid social interaction because they can stay at home and maybe work from home or something like this. But most of us are interacting with people all the time. And so what I find in, in people that are suffering from really severe social anxiety is they're maybe actually doing the situation, but they've got safety behaviors around it. So for instance, wearing sunglasses, regardless of whether or not it's sunny while walking down the street can be a safety behavior so that you're not making eye contact with other people. Also, maybe showing up to class or a social experience, but never saying anything, never raising your hand, never contributing to the conversation. That would also be a safety behavior that a really, a person that's suffering from a lot of social anxiety might be experiencing. And what I want to comment on what you're describing is rather than kind of like going to the scariest thing you can think of, like a class where you raise your hand or a social situation where you contribute your opinion, we often start with helping you tolerate the feeling first. Mm -hmm. So something like doing something embarrassing on your porch or counting money incorrectly at, at the grocery store can trigger the feeling of embarrassment and be amount of embarrassment that's easier to tolerate rather than occurring in a time where there might actually be social consequence. Like if you do something that you perceive as embarrassing and then you become very embarrassed in front of your friends, you might have trouble going back to that situation again. Mm -hmm. And we would consider that to be like too high on mm -hmm. your hierarchy. So we try to help you find things that trigger embarrassment enough to practice. And then once you're used to practicing, then you can bring that practice into everyday life. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about that? No, I, I'm just thinking people might be wondering why we're talking about social anxiety right now when all we're doing is social distancing. Uh -huh. And I think it's, that's the reason we're talking about it because as Maggie talks about so eloquently in her blogs and in her podcast, social anxiety is about, or anxiety disorders in general is about getting sensitized to certain types of situations or stimulus that can provoke anxiety. And what Maggie and I have been talking about is how concerns or thoughts about how social distancing specifically could set people up to be resensitized, particularly people who have been working very hard on their social anxiety. And we've been thinking about creative ways for people to continue working on their social anxiety during this time so that when we get to the end of this period, they will have resensitized the least amount possible. Not that there won't be any resensitization, but that ways people can keep it as low as possible. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And so we've already mentioned a couple different things, including things like just walking down the street and maybe doing something embarrassing. I think some other ideas that I've heard from people that especially if they're not just needing to trigger embarrassment, but they're needing to trigger vulnerability on purpose is all the different kind of friend group chats or group chat video chats with family members, and then also even virtual dating. So a lot of people I'm hearing are taking connections that they're making through text in dating apps and going straight to video as their first date with that person. And I just think that that's wonderful because it's actually really great for social anxiety and that you can specifically focus on, it's easier to focus on what you want to talk about when you know there aren't any other environmental factors happening that might be distracting. I think the emotional intimacy, it's easier to make an emotional 
or to convey emotional intimacy when there isn't a pressure of physical intimacy. So people can actually get to know each other and the intentions are clear that the conversation is about getting to know each other, not where what's going to happen afterwards. And then the other thing that I've noticed or I've heard people talk about is you can really see someone's affect. So mm-hmm. as they're talking, you can also see their facial expression, again, without anything else getting in the way. And that can be like a, a different type of vulnerability that really helps you get to know someone. So not only is dating, video dating, an opportunity to challenge your social anxiety, but there might actually be positive benefits to doing it, it, especially at the beginning of a relationship. Yeah, you know, in my group program, so in Huddle, which is what I do full time, I had initially wondered whether or not telehealth and video chat was going to be as effective as in-person groups because the primary platform is groups. And I actually find that being able to look at everybody at the same time seems to be helpful. Seemed the, 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 like the real emphasis on what your face is looking like while you're talking without any other factors can really help people connect to one another. And I just assume that it also happens in friendship and in dating. Yeah. I've heard some other creative ideas for social anxiety exposures during social distancing. One you already mentioned, which is going on your porch or in front of a window and either doing something you're comfortable doing, but possibility that someone could watch or doing something silly. I do know someone who was working on his social anxiety and he got a phone book and he would randomly go through the phone book, dial numbers and challenge himself to see how long he could keep people on the phone, how long he could engage in a conversation. There is an app called Wakey that allows for free 20 minute conversations with people all over the world and they post what they want to talk about and then you can elect to speak to them or not. Other things I've heard are driving to places that there may be people in their cars that you can see or um, just people on the road uh, going for a walk outside in places where that's still okay and making eye contact with people or if you are working at a higher level on your on your hierarchy saying silly things or doing silly things or walking in silly ways what what other ideas what am i missing I think that's a really good list. I think the only other thing that I want to offer is that you're looking at both distress tolerance goals and functional goals. So if it, if it seemed confusing of what we're arriving at of what to do, uh, just keep in mind that there's two different functions to any exposure. Sometimes it's to build the stress tolerance to the uncomfortable feeling that's causing avoidance. So in the case of social anxiety, the uncomfortable feeling is embarrassment. So anything you can do to trigger an embarrassment and then hang out with it without avoiding and without self-criticism is great for your tolerance over time. And then our, the theory is that as you build that tolerance, then you're going to be able to do more and more things that potentially trigger that feeling. And you won't feel that feeling as sensitively when it's not a threat to you. So that's a distress tolerance goal. And I think a lot of what Jen is describing is distress tolerance goals. Mm -hmm. And then there's also functional goals, like I want to get a partner. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the examples I was using are like, this isn't a time where you're going to have to go, if you were already working on getting into more friendships and getting into a dating relationship as part of a social anxiety functional goal, then I just don't think this is a time where you have to slow down. There's just more creative ways that you can work on making friends and work on dating. Yeah. So I was thinking, um, one of the things I wanted to mention is that for parents of teens or children, um, I've 
or teens that are listening, now is a particular time where, where people could really socially isolate, right? They're not the ones doing the grocery shopping. They're not the ones, they're not particularly into exercise or um, being outside. And so for individuals in that category who also struggle with social anxiety, I think it's really important right now to, to talk openly about how are we going to help you or how are we going to help you help yourself stay motivated during this time? Oh, and another distress tolerance exposure that I was thinking about was calling restaurants, calling grocery stores, calling any place that is open and either asking very basic questions like, what are your hours? Are you still, are you delivering? And then if you want to work up your hierarchy a little bit, you could try to ask them how they're doing or how things have been going at the store during COVID, uh, this COVID-19 time. So that's all. Yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you for saying that. Okay, let's transition over to contamination OCD. And so the first thing that we want to mention that a lot of our clients with contamination with OCD in general are talking about how the thing that felt so isolating and so stigmatized and so unique to their personal story, which is the way that they were getting caught in very specific uncertainties that no one else worried about, is now happening to everybody. So everybody is having a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety. There actually are a lot more uncertainties, but specifically the way that COVID-19 is playing out where there's very specific uncertainties about being contaminated and whether you're going to contaminate someone else and you can't know with certainty whether or not that's occurring, that just maps on to contamination OCD. And for people that have never experienced that at all, it, I, I hope it is very validating to those that suffer from contamination OCD that it's actually very difficult to tolerate mm-hmm. being palpably aware of the uncertainty of the possibility of a threatening thing happening. And really everybody's talking about it because it's so uncomfortable to tolerate. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, that's right on. Yeah. So with that in mind, I'm actually hearing a variety of different reactions ranging from it's really validating for my friends and family to be basically saying the same thing that I'm thinking all the time to kind of resenting the fact that Other people are talking about it maybe as though it's so unique to a person that has been experiencing it every day for years. And so I just want to offer that it really is an opportunity to normalize. It's an opportunity to teach, reduce stigma. So if you were suffering from contamination OCD prior to this pandemic, I think you're the one and you have skills around how you manage uncertainty. You are now in a position of power. Now you're the one that can teach your friends and family how you've effectively dealt with uncertainty along with like getting support from them. So we just hope that that can be an empowering experience. Again, do you want to say anything about that, Jenna? Okay. So the other thing, the more specific besides normalization, validation and empowerment, I think I do also want to comment on more specific advice related to contamination OCD, which is to follow the guidelines from the CDC, the way that you would follow guidelines and rules in therapy. So in therapy, we often say, you know, you can only wash after you go to the bathroom before you eat. And if your hands are visibly dirty and when you're washing, you have to wash to happy birthday or basically 10 seconds and any song that takes up 10 seconds. So obviously the guidelines have moved to 20 seconds and when you, and you wash a little bit more frequently, because if you're touching 
surfaces outside of your home, you know, it's okay to then go, or it's, it's um, encouraged to then go wash your hands. But what I'm hearing from people is that they're still kind of taking that to the next level. Mm -hmm. So rather than just lathering your hands and like rinsing them under cold, uh, warm water, people are scrubbing their hands until they're getting raw. They might be worried about their arms and their elbows and anything else that has touched any other surface. And so I just want to encourage again that it's a, like you basically treat the CDC like it's the conscientious model and remember that your OCD always hijacks the thing that you care about. And so one of the things that maintains contamination OCD is typically conscientiousness, particularly when it's tied to harm OCD too. And so you can use the CDC as a conscientious model and not allow your OCD to hijack what's happening. Maggie, can I ask you to um, clarify what a conscientious model is? I think it's such an important concept. Yeah, great. Let me actually step back for a second and talk about inflated responsibility. So we've kind of talked about on the podcast and in my blog, different cognitive and behavioral mechanisms that maintain anxiety and OCD. And so inflated responsibility is one cognitive mechanism that maintains harm OCD OCD in general and harm OCD in specific. And there's two different types of inflated responsibility. There's an inflated responsibility of thinking, which is also called thought action fusion. So that's having a thought feels like it's true. And because having a thought feels like it's true, it makes me want to do something in response. So that could be something like I have the thought that I'm contaminated and my body suddenly feels contaminated. Mm -hmm. And then I have the urge to wash. The other form of inflated responsibility is taking too much responsibility for your impact on others. And so in this particular time where we have uncertainty about who's sick and who's spreading it and how it's being spread, it's easy for a person that already gets stuck on what if I harm people to really get stuck on, you know, what if I do something that gets somebody else sick? How am I going to live with myself and the guilt that might come with that? And I'm hearing people doing excessive washing or excessive compulsions to try to cope with the feeling of guilt. So yeah, go ahead. It sounds like um, what might be called harm OCD hides as what looks like contamination OCD. They get so fused together in terms of yes, exactly. There can be other textures of contamination OCD. For instance, there can be a hypersensitivity to the feeling of disgust mm -hmm. that leads to excessive washing or checking. There can be a feel a not just right feeling that can lead or look like contamination OCD. I think what I'm seeing most frequently right now in this pandemic is the blend of contamination OCD and harm OCD that's making people really, really triggered by inflated responsibility and really feeling excessive guilt about the possibility of harm. And so how that ties back to the conscientious model is, again, it's okay to be having the thought that you might harm someone. It's okay to have the feeling of guilt. And if you can see that that's above and beyond what you're thinking and feeling is above and beyond what other people are thinking and feeling or what the CDC is suggesting. You can use the CDC as a conscientious model to say, it's okay for me to follow these guidelines rather than the commands of my OCD, not because I'm a bad person that's wanting to harm other people, but because my OCD is hijacking my sense of conscientiousness and I really need somebody else to be the example of what it means to be conscientious right now. 
one thing that OCD again, like hijacks is, or like creates is an over sense of conscientiousness that actually gets in the way of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So I think that's all I have to say about contamination. Why don't we talk about agoraphobia? Can you say what sure, you think? Yeah. So agoraphobia is a, a diagnosis that is often misunderstood, I think primarily because it's misrepresented in the media. It's often seen as people who won't leave their houses or are scared to leave their houses. But what it truly is in a clinical sense is people who are sensitized to fear that certain places may cause them to panic or may cause them to have an experience where they can't escape or get the help they need. So people begin to avoid specific places or activities out of a fear of that happening. So not everyone with agoraphobia is housebound. Sometimes in extreme cases, it may look like that when every place besides their home is a stimulus for the fear. But most of the time, it's maybe three or a few places that really are targeted by their fear. So for some people, it might be wide open spaces. Other people, it might be crowded spaces. Other people, it might be just theaters or their car. What are some other common places that, that you hear, Maggie? You know, I hear, or I guess when I've worked with people with agoraphobia, it's like maybe um, in the same way that you're, I was kind of describing dating, which is kind of high up on the hierarchy, and you're talking about more intense anxiety, that's like anything to do to get embarrassed is great. What I've seen is like walking to the mailbox can sometimes be a challenge. So doing anything to leave the safe space can be a challenge. Right. Right. And so like we talked about with social anxiety, what we're seeing now is that people who have been really working on treating their agoraphobia and challenging their fear of sensation related or panic related to going to specific places or, or leaving what they see as a safe space, we're seeing that people are finding it more challenging to continue working on that and wanting to offer some ideas for how to minimize the amount of sensitization that occurs during this time. And it really is going to take being creative and motivated to continue working on it. Some ideas that I've seen people engage in is really thinking about anything they can do where there's, there's no social contact. So still going to the places that they are scared of, but just going in their own car and not getting out of the car, right? Getting as close as they can. Another option is watching videos of the sort of places or behaviors that uh, like point of view videos, um, like someone walking into a crowded store and really trying to immerse themselves visually in that video. Others would be closing your eyes, imagining the situation and finding a video with sounds that are representative of that, that sort of experience we call that imaginary exposure. What are some other ideas? Yeah, you know, I'm sorry that my train of thought is headed somewhere else, but oh, I was just yeah. thinking, yeah, I was just thinking actually across the board for all four of these topics, you could think about it as like, I at least need to do one a day. So mm -hmm. for either depression or agoraphobia, or if you're experiencing both, put your shoes on every day. So put your shoes on Hopefully that then leads you to at least leave the house. Maybe that means then you get to get in your car or then you get to go on a walk. But the first step is just to put your shoes on. And if you can commit to that, 
the next easiest behavior may be a little bit easier for you. I think with social anxiety, talk to someone every day. And if it's easy to talk to friends and family, then smile at a stranger every day or, or some version of that based on some of the opportunities that you were describing earlier, I think it would be a really good commitment. And then with contamination OCD, you could touch a surface that you feel uncertain about every day. Yeah. So not meaning to cut off your train of thought about agoraphobia. Was there anything else that was coming to mind for you on that? No, that's a really good place to start. Make sure you do one thing a day and you can always work up from there. Yeah. And so I guess in closing, I just want to offer that even in these really uncertain times, there's always opportunity for connection. There's always opportunity for efficacy. And because of that, there's always opportunity for hope. So we hope that we offered some examples of how to understand some various challenges that people are experiencing right now and then what you can do in response. But the biggest theme, I think, is look for connection, even in creative ways. Look for opportunities to be efficacious. And hopefully that will also give you the feeling of hope. Thank you, Maggie. I think your podcast and your blogs specifically provide a lot of hope for a lot of people. And I hope more people will listen and read. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategy shared here. Thank you.